You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's July 26th, 2023, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, an unnamed APT has a remote code execution exploit for Rockwell Automation Control Logic Communications modules. A court temporarily blocks water system cybersecurity mandates. Industrial controller vulnerabilities pose a risk to critical infrastructure. The White House publishes an implementation plan for the National Cybersecurity Strategy. The U.S. federal government issues voluntary IoT security guidelines. Our guest, Mia Clift of Woodard & Curran, talks compliance with an eye on OT security. The Learning Lab concludes with the final part of the three-part discussion between Dragos's Mark Urban and vulnerability analyst Logan Carpenter. They're talking about vulnerabilities in the OT world. An unnamed APT is in possession of a remote code execution exploit affecting Rockwell Automation Control Logics communications modules, bleeping computer reports. Rockwell has issued patches for all affected products, and organizations are strongly advised to apply them. Rockwell analyzed the vulnerability with assistance from the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the company believes there's a high likelihood that these capabilities were developed with an intent to target critical infrastructure and that victim scope could include international customers. Drago said in an analysis of the vulnerability, knowing about an APT-owned vulnerability before exploitation is a rare opportunity for proactive defense for critical industrial sectors. The type of access provided by CVE 2023-3595 is similar to the zero-day employed by Xenotime in the Trisis attack. Both allow for arbitrary firmware memory manipulation, although CVE-2023-3539 targets a communication module responsible for handling network commands. However, their impact is the same. Additionally, in both cases, there exists the potential to corrupt the information used for incident response and recovery. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit has granted a temporary stay of an EPA memorandum that would require states to evaluate the cybersecurity of their water systems, the Washington Post reports. Agency spokesperson Robert Daguiard told the Post, EPA is disappointed by the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals order that undercuts EPA's efforts to protect the safety of the nation's drinking water from malicious cyber attacks. The one-sentence ruling offered no reasons for the temporary stay, simply stating, The motion for stay of the Environmental Protection Agency's March 3, 2023 memorandum pending disposition of the petition for review is granted. Three states' attorneys general petitioned for the stay, and they did so with the support of several water utility associations. The petitioners' public statements have emphasized their skepticism over the EPA's proposed rules, 
which they regard as representing a simplistic one-size-fits-all approach to water system cybersecurity. They also objected to what they characterized as a heavy financial burden the rules would impose on smaller utilities. The EPA, for its part, has emphasized the troubling frequency of cyber attacks against water systems. The utilities do rely heavily on networked operational control systems for their routine operations. A recent example of a cyber threat to a water system is the one that affected the Discovery Bay water treatment plant in California. That attack drew a federal indictment. Researchers at Armis discovered nine vulnerabilities affecting Honeywell's Experian Distributed Control Systems products, TechCrunch reports. An attacker with network access could exploit the flaws to remotely run unauthorized code on both the Honeywell server and controllers. Curtis Simpson, CISO at Armis, told TechCrunch, Worst-case scenarios you can think of from a business perspective are complete outages and a lack of availability. But there's worse scenarios than that, including safety issues that can impact human lives. Honeywell issued patches for the flaws last month. Honeywell spokesperson Caitlin E. Leopold said in a comment to TechCrunch, We have been working with Armis on this issue as part of a responsible disclosure process. We have released patches to resolve the vulnerability and notified impacted customers. There are no known exploits of this vulnerability at this time. Experion C300 owners should continue to isolate and monitor their process control network and apply available patches as soon as possible. The National Cybersecurity Strategy Implementation Plan the White House issued earlier this month has five pillars. All of them are of interest to operational technology and industrial control system operators, but the first pillar, defending critical infrastructure, has particular relevance. That pillar has five strategic objectives that are in turn supported by specific initiatives. The first strategic objective, establish cybersecurity requirements to support national security and public safety, is self-explanatory. And the objectives suggest that the government believes current regulatory regimes are inadequate to the task. The second strategic objective, scale public-private collaboration, tasks the sector risk management agencies responsible for each of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors with developing secure-by-design and secure-by-default principles that would advance their sector security. Integrate federal cybersecurity centers is the third objective. The single initiative here mandates a review to identify capability gaps. The next objective, update federal incident response plans and processes, aims at developing such plans and processes into a comprehensive whole-of-nation approach to cyber incidents. It seeks to make response quicker, more immediately responsive to warnings, and to develop training that will enable the responders to work effectively. Tabletop exercises are particularly called out. The fifth strategic objective, Modernize Federal Defenses, concentrates mostly on IT systems, with special attention paid to federal civilian executive branch agencies' systems. The White House points out that the guidance is not exhaustive. Agencies are expected to take actions appropriate to their missions and circumstances. Operators of critical infrastructure might begin by getting close to their sector risk management agency, their SRMA. Since public-private partnership is called out repeatedly in the implementation plan, Companies would do well to take the document at its word. 
and not hesitate to reach out to the appropriate federal offices. The White House has announced a cybersecurity labeling program for smart devices. Under the proposed new program, consumers would see a newly created U.S. cyber trust mark in the form of a distinct shield logo applied to products meeting established cybersecurity criteria. The goal of the program is to provide tools for consumers to make informed decisions about the relative security of products they choose to bring into their homes. Manufacturers and retailers that have committed to the voluntary program include Amazon, Best Buy, Google, LG Electronics, Logitech, and Samsung. According to CyberScoop, the program will be overseen by the Federal Communications Commission. The Washington Post earlier last week interviewed FCC Chair Jessica Rosenworcel. The choice of the FCC as the responsible agency emphasizes that connected devices, and realistically that means at some point wireless connectivity, will be the devices that will qualify for or fail to qualify for the badge. Rosenworcel told the Post, We live in an era of always-on connectivity. Connections aren't just convenient, they power every aspect of modern life. And if this energy is new, I would say our authority is old. We're just giving it modern meaning. And I think in a modern way, that requires us to think about how to make communications networks cyber-secure. She also offered some thoughts on network security, stating, We have issued a list of equipment that we believe is insecure that we won't support on our networks. Here, she's clearly alluding to the rip-and-replace program that addresses concerns about the security of Chinese manufactured hardware. She also wants to see her commission continue to work to understand the vulnerabilities in the Border Gateway Protocol. The whole effort, Rosenworcel believes, is inherently an interagency one, whichever organization takes the lead. She told the Post, I don't think this task is one where the agency succeeds on its own. She hopes to increase coordination with other agencies from across the government. Different agencies have different missions, different histories, and different equities, which should enable them to make distinctive contributions to the common task of securing connected devices. What sorts of devices might be up for a cyber trust mark? Rosenworcel mentioned connected refrigerators, microwaves, televisions, climate control systems, fitness trackers, and baby monitors. The Post points out several potential gaps, speakers, doorbells, security cameras, and cars, but after all, the list Rosenworcel reeled off was an informal one. The cyber trust mark is intended to be a carrot and not the sort of stick one often associates with regulatory action. Rosenworcel thinks the labels might begin to appear by the end of next year, the end of 2024. These things don't move fast, she said, and cautioned that her prediction wasn't a commitment to a timeline. I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Mia Clift, head of cybersecurity for Woodard & Curran. Our conversation centers on compliance with an eye on OT security. Here's my conversation with Mia Clift. I think that water and wastewater is still learning how to deal with compliance in an ever-changing landscape. We have new regulations coming down. We see water has been listed in 
the government mandates as critical infrastructure. So that changes the perspective of these small organizations that may not have thought about cybersecurity in that way before. They've looked at physical security. They have gates and they have locks and, and, and doors, but they haven't had an opportunity to really look at understanding OT environments need cybersecurity just as much as their, their laptops on the regular network. So they're still really learning that those policies that they've built for the IT network aren't really in concert with how OT works. And so they have to learn how to marry them, but they also have to learn to compromise and lean in to the differences that OT has compared to IT. For folks who aren't in that water world, um, can you give us a a little idea of of how... Uh, it's set up. I mean, I think most people, you know, electricity seems to get all of the <laughs> the, the attention when it comes to, to press and uh, understanding how it works. But not a whole lot of people, I think, who aren't in that world really get how the, the water utility space functions. It, it really depends on the organization. So you have, you have drinking water and you have wastewater. So there's two different types of water plant. It, I think there's more than that, but we'll focus on those two. So drinking water is keeping that water clean, putting the right chemicals in it, and then how to pump it out. And that's where we see water main breaks. That's where we see chemical boil advisories because of contamination. Or you know, there was even a case in Vermont, I think it was Vermont, where uh, a water manager didn't put fluoride in the water for like 10 years because wow. he didn't believe in it. So that's kind of the drinking water space and the wastewater space is, you know, where does everything go when it leaves your sink, when it leaves your bathroom? And how do we treat that to get that water back into uh, usage? Because we only have so much water in the world, right? So we have to do what we can to, uh, you know, take solids out, to clean those things, to, to make water good again. So there's, there's a lot that goes into that. And those operations have to be able to run 24 seven, because I don't know about you, but I really like to drink water and I like <laughs> having showers. So, uh, they, they really are critical. And up until recently, they didn't have to worry too much about cybersecurity because they're, they're running on older software, or sometimes they may not be running on software at all. They may be running manually, but with mm. the advent of the pandemic and people putting in remote solutions and starting to identify that there were ways that people could do some of their their work on these plants remotely, it did open up the industry for exploit and uh, put the, you know, added them to the threat landscape. So when we're talking about compliance, can you give us uh, an idea of what the What's the spectrum of regimes here? I mean, are we talking about a federal level, a state level, a local level? Do they all come into play? The America's Water Infrastructure Act of 2018 really started the ball rolling on understanding compliance around the OT space. And it requires that every water plant has to do an inspection from a cybersecurity perspective and do a risk assessment every five years. And in that, they're supposed to have things like uh, incident response plans, emergency response plans. And both of those should have cyber components in them, along with making sure that they know what assets are on their network and how things are programmed effectively and building on that maturity. It doesn't say you have to do this or you'll be fine. It's just saying, this is what we recommend. 
the EPA this year then started with the mandate of having sanitary inspectors in every state do cybersecurity hygiene inspections as well. But that, of course, was just recently blocked. So in the future, federal mandates are likely going to be what perpetuates good cyber hygiene in the space. But we're still waiting to see what that's going to mean. What is the state of things when it comes to cyber hygiene? Are are, are folks uh, like a lot of uh, utilities out there, my sense is they're playing a bit of catch up? They're very much playing catch up. And I think a lot of times there's still a pervasive mentality of that won't happen here Mm. or we're totally okay. We don't have things or our IT department's going to take care of it. And in reality, the IT and OT environments need to be completely separate. We've seen a lot of ransomware attacks take out water systems for uh, municipalities and having to make them run manually instead of running with technology because the IT and OT networks weren't separated and someone clicked an email and installed something that took over the network. Isolating the OT network because the, the technology being older than modern constructs allows it to be insulated and adds an extra layer of security that it needs. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight that, the, that you know, the, I guess there's an attitude of uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it when it comes to a lot of these things. You know, I don't know, perhaps I'm being naive, but, you know, a valve can function for decades. It's true, but there's also the challenge of budgeting. You know, mm. you have these small municipalities who have to decide on whether securing their remote software to their water system is affordable when they have three water mains that are 100 years old that are cracking and need to be replaced before you lose water and have boil water advisories and then mess with the reputation or even access to the drinking water that their community needs. So I think with some federal intervention with grants and enhancements in cybersecurity, you know, CISA has done a lot. There's a lot of information sharing organizations like Water ISAC. And of course, Dragos has OT cert. I, I think that there's progress that can be made. It's just a matter of raising the awareness and then helping to build that availability to these environments to give them the resources needed to balance out paying for that water main and paying for cybersecurity. So uh, what are your recommendations then for organizations to approach compliance? What's a practical way to come at it? Start with the foundations. Look at your network, split them up, you know, separate your IT and OT as much as you can, hopefully completely physically separated. And then also look at incident response Look at how you're protecting things. Even if it's as simple as don't write down your password and leave it on the the HMI system, (laughs) you you would be amazed at how much of a difference that can make because people just think it's okay to leave their password out and that's not okay anymore. And then also, you know, working on educating not just about their OT network and, and how it affects the water, but looking at things like phishing and... Uh, ransomware, raising those awareness components, I think is is really important. Then you can work on the higher maturity things of, are, do we need to back up these systems? How do we keep resilience? How can we better protect our remote access solution with multi-factor authentication? Do we need to upgrade uh, you know, our controllers because they're legacy? Work on those capital improvements after you get the basics down. 
Do you have a, a certain amount of empathy for folks who are out there who are saying, you know, we're, we're fighting a bit of fatigue here? We're, as you may say, we've got limited budget, limited personnel, limited resources to be able to simply check these boxes sometimes. I mean, we're, we're doing the best we can here. I absolutely have empathy. It, it's a hard position to be in when you have to meet the needs of the people but also be secure to meet the needs of the people. And I think there is a lot of fatigue because there's a lot going on. There's a lot of threats. There's a lot of conflicting priorities. And that's why I'm hopeful that in the future, we'll see the federal government provide more grants and available resources and hopefully other industry professionals like, you know, how Dragos is doing OT cert and how Water ISAC is building partnerships We'll have more opportunity for public-private collaboration to get the tools and resources to the masses effectively. Our thanks to Mia Clift from Woodard and Curran for joining us. Dragos's Mark Urban and vulnerability analyst Logan Carpenter finish up their three-part discussion about vulnerabilities in the OT world. Hi, this is Mark Urban with another edition of Learning Lab here on Control Loop. Today, I'm joined by Logan Carpenter. And Logan is a vulnerability analyst here on the Dragos Worldview Intelligence Team there's a long reporting train that goes into them working with the vendors, doing the disclosures. Can you describe when, you know, the term zero-day vulnerability is, is thrown around? Do you, do you look for those vulnerabilities? What are those? And, you know, are they particularly concerning or, or what's your perspective on that? So a zero vulnerability is a new vulnerability. There's nothing about a particular vulnerability that uh, zero day vulnerability that makes it special other than the fact is that it's unreported and unknown to the public. Right. So, right. Like, like for instance, right. I'm, I'm looking at a few different, you know, OT softwares and devices right now. And I've had vulnerabilities that I have not yet reported to the, to the, the vendors because I'm still, you know, my assessment is not over yet. Right. And I and I haven't gotten all my ducks in a row to reach out to them and go, hey, you know, let's go through this process. So technically right now I have zero days. Right. These are vulnerabilities that nobody knows about, that the public doesn't know about. So if they are leveraged, they will work because there's no patch, no nothing. It's it's unknown. Nobody's expecting it. So sometimes I think people kind of get confused when they hear the buzzword of zero days and they think like these are specific vulnerabilities with like specific capabilities, but no, it, it could be a zero day could suck. It could be a dumb vulnerability, right? It could, it, it could be a vulnerability that if you execute it, it'll print hello in the corner of your screen and that's all it can do, right? Like it could be something silly like that, right? Um, or it could be something more nefarious, like, you know, remote code execution. Yeah. The, the whole term of zero day just means it's a vulnerability that hasn't been disclosed to the public yet. 
Gotcha. So it's not the, it could be a big bad boogeyman, but that don't get wound up over the terminology of zero day. That just means. Definitely don't get wound up. There's a lot of hype in the security industry in general. So um, that's kind of one of the parts that we play too in our Intel team is like, we, we try to not overreact to things and like calm our customers down and and even the public too. Like, cause sometimes things just get blown out of proportion and, you know, news outlets, you know, they, they sell on emotion. So like something hits the news and it's like, oh, it's this big deal. It's going to cause this next big thing. And it's like, no, actually it's not that big of a deal. You know, you don't have to worry about it. So. What are some of the common types of vulnerabilities you do see in OT? Is, is it a oh, lot of man. writing hello in the upper right screen or what are the, what do you see there? Okay. So one thing, you know, one of the things that kept me in OT security and threw me in like early in my career was it was so easy to like IT vulnerabilities and, and like like even like pen testing IT systems and devices is so much more difficult than OT systems because a lot of the basic like don't do this is done in OT products, right? For instance, like a, a basic vulnerability is like, um, you know, what will be known as like cross-site scripting, right? So you'll have like a web server and you'll inject some, you know, text into it. And pretty much like you'll have a web server, right? You'll send a request, but you'll change some of the the text in the parameter and it'll execute some code on the server that the server doesn't know about or pull data from the server the server doesn't know about. Just basic cross-site scripting. Those vulnerabilities are almost in every single OT, you know, product that we see. Not every single, but a lot, a lot. Um, I looked at a device last year that was a, um, it was a industrial router and it had a vulnerability that, you know, the routers, they have like a trace route function that you can go out to, you know, do whatever debugging you need to do on your network. Well, the trace route function took the text that the user put in and it just slapped it into a bash script. So, you could just cancel out with a semicolon and put whatever bash command you wanted. And the server had root privileges. So those kind of vulnerabilities are super popular over privileging um, like runtimes and which runtime is just like for, for a PLC. It's like the system that controls the logic and uh, configuration of the device. It's like the a system within the operating system. So like sometimes they'll overprivilege runtimes um, or the web servers that run on these some of these devices will be overprivileged and have root access. So if you do have a vulnerability in that code, you can literally do whatever you want. Um, a, a popular one now is like the, the UNC path injection stuff. Um, lots of undocumented commands. Undocumented commands are like are one of those things that you are, are ubiquitous in OT and I, uh, OT and ICS security, well, OT and ICS devices. So what un- undocumented commands are, you'll have these protocols or you'll have like web servers as well that have like almost like these back doors that vendors use usually for like maintenance. So if you have like a relay from a vendor and it breaks and the relay and, and the, the vendor has a warranty on it. And they want to try to fix it for you. They have like these commands that they don't document. They don't tell, but they're there. And analysts like myself can go in, look at the firmware um, or use like fuzzing techniques to find these commands. And, you know, for instance, a good example is like one of our analysts, Sam had published a blog about these guys who uh, this guy that was writing password crackers 
or PLCs. And the, the, the password cracking software he was selling also was embedded with malware. But that's a whole different topic. But the point of it was the, the way that he was cracking these passwords of all these PLCs was he had reverse engineered and figured out all the undocumented commands that allowed him to overwrite the passwords. So there were like commands that would allow him to read and write physical memory. And I've seen vulnerabilities like that from literally every single big vendor has done this at least once. They all do it. So versus the the pipe dream malware, um, Bad Omen, which affected like some of the Omron tools. There was a uh, one of the, the commands that they used that Bad Omen used to enable this backdoor was a command that was not documented in any of Omron's documentation. You couldn't find it even if you reverse engineered the SysMac software. It was not used by SysMac Studio, which is like the engineering workstation software used to program those devices. It was not in there anywhere. It was a vendor-specific command that was designed to do maintenance on the actual file system on the PLC. And they found this. So they were able to do things like activate Telnet and send files to the actual root file system. Those are some other, you know, undocumented commands are a real issue as well. So really the embarrassing ones, like when you think of vulnerabilities, whatever the embarrassing ones is, like like the, the basic security things, these are some of the things that we're struggling with in OT and ICS security now. And like we find these all the time. Zip slip is another one. Um, <laughs> or what is it? Directory traversal. That's that's the technical term for it. Um, so for those of you who don't know what a zip slip is, pretty much there's a feature that was in there intentionally, but nobody really knew about it. That if you pack up, uh, if you compress a, any kind of compressed file, zip, tar, gz, whatever, if you compress it in a way that um, uses what you call uh, traversal sequences. So if you know Linux, it's like dot dot slash dot dot slash dot dot slash to kind of go back. And directories, you can literally put a file somewhere else in the file system just by opening up the zip file. And it was a, made popular by like Sync or Sync Security, like in 2018 or something like that. Anyways, a lot of OT systems, especially project files, some of the, the uh, configuration that they upload and download to PLCs, like so like logic files and stuff like that are generally compressed before they are sent. Or when like a project file saved, it's compressed using these. And a lot of these systems are vulnerable to zip slip. So you can like repack things up. If you have access to like EWS, the engineering workstation, um, you can drop this special zip folder on there and they open it up and it'll maybe rewrite a library. <laughs> um, yeah, so zip slip is another is another uh, fun one. That's a fun one that we find. It's like low hanging stuff. I see actually, I seen a uh, a post on Mastodon. Somebody actually posted it in one of our Slack channels, and it was like uh, it said something pretty much like people say finding vulnerabilities are hard, and it was like just stop looking for the hard ones. There's plenty of easy ones. There's plenty of easy ones. Like you're looking for those buffer overflows where you send especially crafted, you know, data that, you don't know, no, just some, the, 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 the stupid thing has zip slip, a zip slip vulnerability. Just throw a special zip file on there and it'll, you know, overwrite one of the DLLs on the, in, in the file system. And then you have access to it. It's like, 
Simple. It's way more simple. <laughs> you, you know, D- Danielle and my team said that you, you make vulnerabilities fun, and I think she was. <laughs> I think she was actually right. This is the best conversation I ever had about vulnerabilities. I don't know about you, <laughs> but Logan Carpenter, uh, our vulnerability ana- analyst here, here at Dragos, thank you. Uh, thanks for joining. Thanks. Uh, thanks for all the kind of cool information about vulnerabilities. And I'm glad we have you out there looking for them with the other folks here at Dragos uh, and kind of giving that context to, you know, how people can manage through it. Much appreciated. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. I always enjoy nerding out over vulnerabilities. <laughs> um, so whenever you need me to talk about something, I'm always available. And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the CyberWire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for the show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche and Mark Urban. Our script is by Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time.